You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Yeah, so grab your Bibles and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 15. Let's start in and read this. It says, Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. And then Paul asked this question, which gives us a lot of insight into what he was dealing with with the Corinthian church. Verse 17, he asked this question. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? Let's just take that for a second here. Oftentimes within the text of Scripture, as you read it, and and you start um, sort of drawing back a little bit, right, and, and trying to grab the big picture of what's going on, you can start to see and understand sort of the inference of what the author of the letter is referring to. Apparently, Paul was dealing with this church, the Corinthian church, as we know from the first letter that is recorded in Scripture, that they were a church that kind of had a lot of issues, and and they always seemed to be dealing with some sort of thing, whether it was sin that was present in the church, or people were being sort of um, led astray by other teachings or philosophies, but also what seems to be true here is that Paul is dealing with a church that at the same time is two things really confident, kind of arrogant, like we've said in our previous study of 1 Corinthians. Paul um, just commends the church for having all of the spiritual giftings available. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, right? Paul has to talk about how to appropriately, appropriately use the spiritual gifts. So apparently the church there just had tons of the Holy Spirit moving in it, people with giftings being expressed. But Paul had to sort of draw them back to the purpose of those gifts. So you had this church that was really confident in one way, to the point of almost arrogance, but you also have a church that has been become somehow cynical. We'll see some evidence of this in a couple of ways throughout uh, chapter 2, but Paul seems to be answering this, um, this sort of indictment from the church that he, the founder of the church, was somehow wishy-washy, that he was saying, yes, I'm going to come visit you, and we're going to spend time together, and I'm going to deal with the issues that were in the church, and then all of a sudden sends a message that goes, nah, never mind, I'm not going to come. And the church there gets kind of annoyed, kind of frustrated with Paul going, listen, which one is it? Are you coming or not, right? And there seems to be this interaction between them where the church and this happens a lot in churches that have been established for a long time, is they sort of get into a groove of who they are, right? They've seen the Lord move, their spiritual giftings at work, and then all of a sudden the church sort of becomes convinced of its own self-importance and thinks, we've kind of got this figured out, Paul, and we're kind of one of the main cities that you should be concerned with, and so you kind of should be stopping by and spending time with us, right? And he seems to be answering that kind of issue within the church. But here's what Paul says. He says, I definitely wanted to come to you so that you could have an experience of grace, meaning that his presence there would be gracious to them, not harsh. And that'll play into something we see in just a moment that perhaps one of the times Paul was there in Corinth, the meeting didn't go so well that it was pretty tense. Paul's saying, I want to come so that I could show grace to you. Some people mis- misquote this and think that, um, that this somehow uh, supports the idea that after salvation, there's another work of grace, meaning that the Holy Spirit comes upon an individual after salvation, that it's not one and at the same time. So funny little teaching, if you ever hear that, that's not true. At the moment of salvation, when you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are then sealed by the Holy Spirit, which Paul will say in just a minute here. He says in verse 17, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this, saying I wanted to come to you and have you send me on my way? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, 
For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him, meaning in Jesus, our word is always yes. Verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So here's what Paul, Paul is saying, is that he's saying, listen, the example that I've been taught by, remember, Paul was sent out as an apostle by Jesus. Having met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was commissioned by the Lord Jesus to go out and preach the gospel and, and build the kingdom. And Paul was, was trained by Jesus, he says in Galatians, we'll see it later on when we study that book, that Paul actually was taught directly by Jesus, commissioned by him and taught by Jesus. And then he had interaction with the other apostles, Jesus' disciples whom he had commissioned and sent out as well, right? The 11 plus 1. And so Paul is, is just saying that, Listen, I'm not in a human sense being fickle or wishy-washy. I'm actually following the example of Jesus that whatever God's answer is to me, whatever God tells me, whether it's yes or no, then the answer is yes in the sense that whatever God says goes. And I'm only going to do what God tells me to do. It reminds me of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. Perhaps you know that scripture well. Mark it down for later study. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but God directs his steps. Right? You and I can have ideas all day long and say, I'd like to do this. I want to go conquer the world for Jesus. I want to go get married and have 12 kids, and I want to go into business and make millions of dollars, or whatever the case might be. You can have the best laid plans. And yet God might say, actually, here's what I want you to do. This is what I need your life to look like. For, for, for your benefit, you don't see it, but it's going to be for you and your good and my glory. I've got a plan for you in the kingdom, and it may look very differently than how you plan it to be. And so Paul says, this isn't about my plans and whether I'm being wishy-washy or not. I'm just following what Jesus said. And if Jesus says to go, I'll say yes. And then if Jesus changes plans and says no then I'll say no. And either way, it's yes because I'm following Jesus. Does that make sense? Kind of confusing, but that's the point of it. Now, this is where Paul can say amen to that. He says in verse eight, uh, 20, that is why it is through Jesus that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Look at verse 21, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That word guarantee can also be translated as the idea of down payment, that God has given us his spirit to dwell with us as a down payment. Now, here's what Paul's saying, our connection as the church universally, is not always based on our physical proximity. The Corinthian church didn't have to have Paul in their presence for them to be powerful and effective. They had been taught what was right. They had been taught the way of Jesus, and they were responsible to continue to work in that mission and for that purpose. They didn't need to have Paul there necessarily. If he came, then it would be a blessing to them. Paul says we're connected not through physical proximity, but through the Holy Spirit that God has anointed all of his believers with. That everyone who's a part of the church has the presence of the Holy Spirit to unite us so that we here in Springfield, Oregon, can be united to the church in China or Iran or some other place in the world where we may not be physically present, but the thing is, is that we're all experiencing the same kinds of human things that humans go through. We're all experiencing the same kinds of struggles that people who follow Jesus experience living in a world that isn't our home. And so we're united in the things that we experience. We're also united because of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul means to say when he says that God has given or put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, that idea of a guarantee or a down payment. 
Remember how Jesus told his disciples, I have to go away. I have to go away, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare a place for us to be together forever. And I'll come back for you, and I'm going to get you, and I'm going to have this place prepared where we're going to be together forever. But he says, I have to go away so that the comforter can come and dwell with you. The comforter has to come and be with us to counsel us and lead us and guide us into all truth is what Jesus said. And the Holy Spirit is that sort of placeholder, the guarantee, the down payment that says Jesus is coming back, that there is a future and a hope for us to be with the Lord for eternity. That's part of the Holy Spirit's purpose and job, if you will, to remind us of all the things that Jesus told us, to lead us into all the truth, and to be the guarantee, the promise that Jesus is coming back, that we have a place with him in the future. Now let's take a look at verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Now we get into the meaty part of this. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Paul reveals the actual purpose. He says, I wasn't being wishy-washy. I actually had a really good reason. Now, I had plans to come to you. God had other plans. And sort of pastorally and with good discernment, Paul says, actually, here's the reason that I didn't come to you. The reason I was delayed was for your benefit. It's so that in my expression of authority, Paul says, to teach you and to correct you and to call you out on the things that were sinful in your midst, that I wouldn't come to you and continue having this conflict. Remember, I wanted to come so that you could have this second experience of grace in my presence, that we could have this union and fellowship and comfort, and instead, apparently, there was still some issue going on in the church that Paul had to address, and so he said, the reason I didn't come is because I didn't want to get into a conflict with you in person. It would have been too hard. It would have been too harsh. And, and, and he says, not that we lord it over your faith, meaning we come with authority when we speak from God. We come with instruction and correction. He says, but I don't want to lord that over you. I want to do that with love and with grace. When you read about it in Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter exhorts his fellow elders that we're supposed to rule over the church, those who are called to lead the church, that they're supposed to do it with just love and grace and patience, not under compulsion, not like, oh gosh, I got to go shepherd the flock again. Oh man, I got to go deal with the church people again. No, no, no. That it should be this loving, gracious thing that goes, oh, What a refreshment, what a comfort. The body gets to be together. The family gets to come together. Paul says, we don't want to lord it over you and have to act like big brother looking over your shoulder going, I'm watching you and I'm marking down all of your sins. He says, no, rather, I want to come alongside of you and I want to encourage you. We work with you for your joy, he says, for you stand firm in your faith. The universal nature of the body of Christ is called to work together to encourage one another, which ends up glorifying God. And that's the twofold purpose that the church is called to gather together. Now, in doing that, in encouraging one another and glorifying God in the pre- by, by gathering together as the church, sometimes that means that we get to do the thing that we want to do. And sometimes that means that we have to sacrifice what we want for the better, for the godly purpose, and this is what Paul shows here, the godly purpose of delaying his presence with the Corinthians. He wanted to be there, but he was willing to sacrifice that for their good. This is a quote that just sticks with me, rolls around my head, resonates. I have to remember it often and frequently. True love always requires sacrifice. When you truly love someone or something, at some point in that relationship, you're going to have to sacrifice something. Whether it be pleasure for yourself, time for yourself, whether it be something valuable to you, most often pride, you have to sacrifice for the sake of true love. Paul loved the church, and he was even willing to sacrifice what he wanted. I want to go be with you so that we could have comfort with one another and have grace together. But to avoid any conflicts, I held back. Plans got changed. Let's take a look at chapter 2. 
Chapter 2 begins and says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. There it is again, even in Paul's own hand, his own writing. I have abundant love for you. I have this desire for us to just be in fellowship together, one with another. And, and, and so he goes, it pains me to have to write the things that I write, wrote to you. Now, there's a discussion here that seems to regard a timeline. And when scholars uh, uh, study this, they think that Paul is referring to a connection between one of several things. That there was an initial visit that he had with the Corinthians... And then there was the first letter that he had to write, 1 Corinthians, in response to reports that there was sin taking place in the Corinthian church. That was the letter of 1 Corinthians. And then there's sort of a cloudy timeline where some scholars differ on this one, that Paul um, had a second visit with the Corinthians, which was harsh, that it was a, a, a visit marred with conflict, that there was a lot of argumentation, and that it was, it was a harsh meeting. And then this is where scholars really differ on whether there was another letter to the Corinthians, not this second Corinthians that we're reading right now, but an actual third letter that wasn't included in the canon of the scripture as, a, uh, as an inspired writing of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but rather just another letter that Paul wrote. And that perhaps that's what he's referring to in regard to what he wrote. You can go back and forth. Scholars take different positions on all those things. I think at the end of the day, simply what Paul's referring to is his first letter, 1 Corinthians, which is included in Scripture, and the subsequent visit after that, which included a harsh rebuke from Paul concerning the issues addressed in the first letter. Because if you remember back, Paul says, it's my hope to come to you. I want to come to you in person. Right, And so I think that's what Paul's referring to. But again, with pastoral discernment, with true love for the church, Paul says this, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. That's why I changed my plans. He says, in a real practical way, for if I cause you pain, you're in pain, and here I am in pain for you. How are we supposed to comfort one another? Because remember what Paul said in the very first chapter. He says, we're supposed to comfort one another with the comfort that we've received. And if I come to you harshly and I'm smacking down on you again about all the things that are wrong in the church, well, how are you going to comfort me? And, and I've just been harsh to you. How am I supposed to comfort you? He said, rather, in verse 3, and I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. Meaning, I hope to have dealt with all the hard issues in my letter so that when we're together again, we could actually rejoice. And he says, for I felt sure of all of you, in the second part of verse 3, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Again, it just reminds me of the scripture that says, we're supposed to weep with those who weep, and we're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice. That's what we're supposed to be looking for in the body of Christ. That when someone's hurting, we hurt with them. We cry with them. We experience the struggle with them and we come around them to support them, right? And it's like, again, for parents, it's, it's the easiest analogy. When your kiddo's going through something that's hard and painful, man, your heart just breaks for them and you wish you could trade places with them. You wish you could be the one that just could lift them up and just heal them in that moment. And yet sometimes you realize they have to go through some hard things to develop character and perseverance and obedience to the Lord. And yet at the same time, when someone experiences joy in the body of Christ, we're supposed to experience that joy together. And so in that way, the church is one of the most equal places in the world. As far as organizations are concerned, the church, the body of Christ, is one of the most equitable places on earth. We're all treated the same by God because of our sin nature and the need for salvation in Jesus Christ. 
And no one person in the church should be lower in their emotions and their experiences in the same way that there should never be one person who's higher than everybody else in all of their experiences and their emotions. Why? Because we're supposed to experience that together, this organic relationship that says, oh, shoot, one of my brothers or sisters is down in the dump. Something's going wrong with them. La-di-da, on with the rest of my day. Everything's good in my life. I hope God provides for them. No, you can't do that. You need to come around them and experience and empathize with that pain and that suffering and in the same way. Someone who's rejoicing, it's not just them at the mountaintop because we all stand on the shoulders of giants. We all stand on the work that has been done before us, people who raised us and and pastored us and loved us and prayed for us and cared for us and taught us and discipled us. We're all together in this, and this is what Paul is referring to. And so verse 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Sometimes the hard conversations that a pastor has to have can be misinterpreted as, as judgmental or harsh or mean-spirited, and that's just not the case. Pastors have this responsibility, and I, I've been in this position where, man, you wish every conversation was just all about God bless you, and you're doing great, and you're walking with the Lord, but there's so many times those conversations have to include, and hey, by the way, you know that thing that's going on in your life, man, that's just not honoring the Lord. That's not what the scripture shows us. That's not how Jesus would have us act. Now, here's the reality of that. For most pastors that I know, and I can say this from experience, I've been on the receiving end of those conversations. I know how those felt to be rebuked, to be called out, and to be told by someone that I respect and an authority figure spiritually in my life having to say, Lucian, there's something going on here that's not healthy. It's not good for you. And for your sake... We're going we're gonna to tell you about it. And we're actually going to hold you accountable to what the word would call you to, to repent of those things for your good, for your protection, and for the future that God has for you in the ministry. We're going to call you out on that sin. And in those conversations, man, it feels harsh and it feels just brutal sometimes. And if pride rears its head, when someone's trying to encourage you to walk in holiness, if pride rears its head, then it's really easy to point a finger back at the person who's trying to point you back to the Lord and go, you're just a big old bully. You don't understand my situation. Again, a quote by Charles Spurgeon, which sits with me often, says, bold-hearted men are often called mean-spirited by cowards. And that's not reverse name calling. It's not calling the sinner, the person who might be prideful in their sin, a a coward to be mean to them, but a coward in the sense of not surrendering fully to the will of God in Jesus Christ for our lives. That's cowardly to go, I'm not going to make that sacrifice, which would indicate perhaps I don't truly love Jesus. And those who call people to that, those who rebuke sin in life, oftentimes they're called mean-spirited. Why? Because I love my sin. Sometimes I'm defined by my sin, and I don't want someone to call me out on it. I don't like that. I don't like it when someone reminds me of something I'm supposed to do or, or a statement that I've made to say, no, this is what I want my life to be about, and they call me out and go, then why are you acting like that? Why are you saying or doing those things? That doesn't feel good, but it's not because they're mean-spirited. It's because perhaps I've been a coward to not surrender my life to Jesus completely. Well, let's take a look at... Verses 5 through 11 here, we covered most of this on Sunday, but Paul says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you, meaning he was in your presence. Verse 6 says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather Turn to forgive and comfort him. Make note of the word comfort. Again, that's the big theme here that Paul's introducing his letter, is this mutual comfort we're supposed to have. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his 
designs or his devices, his tools, his plans. That's what we talked about on Sunday, being aware of those things that Satan, in the reality of who he is, is trying to draw us away from God's promises. Now, here's what's happening. Again, I talked about it briefly on Sunday. Paul rebuked the church in his first letter to them for approving of a man who was involved in horrible sin. In 1 Corinthians, the first couple chapters, Paul describes this behavior. I believe it's in chapter 2 where he says, there's even a man among you who is sleeping with his father's wife and you approve of it. And if you remember back to those studies, it was like the Corinthian church at that time was somehow trying to be really sort of like, whether you call it ecumenical or worldly, they were trying to prove themselves as a group of people who were accepting of everyone, right? Accepting of pagan behavior, saying, you know, he's basically, yeah, he's sleeping with his dad's wife, but come on, he's basically a good guy, right? Like that seems to be the attitude that Paul is condemning in the Corinthian church, And so Paul harshly rebuked them and said, you need to cast that one out for unrepentant, sinful behavior. Now, here's what appears to have happened. Apparently, the church took Paul's instructions, his command to them to take the one who was involved in sin and move them out of the church to not have fellowship with him, to cut him off until he repented. Apparently, the church did that, but what seems to have happened is that they sort of overreacted to Paul's instructions, which again, in the Christian life, this is very often the case. And I sum it up by saying it this way. My sin on you looks worse than my sin on me, right? If I'm the one sinning, it's like, have some grace for me, brother. Come on. I'm having a hard time. But if I see my sin on you, all of it's, you need to repent. You're just a mess, yeah? That often is the case when we feel conviction, when someone has corrected us or we've been rebuked for something, we turn and we uh, point that toward a scapegoat of some kind. We take the feelings of our guilt. We take the feelings of our conviction and we place it upon a scapegoat, someone else who's practiced that sin. And because it became public knowledge, we demonize that person. And we go to all ends of the earth to, to proclaim that they're a sinner and they're bad, right? And we can't have fellowship with them. But the thing is, is that Paul calls them out on this type of behavior. And here's the thing. Paul says, again, now if anyone has caused pain, meaning the one who had sinned openly in their midst, he caused the pain to you as the body of Christ, the witness of the church, Verse 6, for such a one, this punishment, meaning the being cast out of the church, being separated, excommunicated for the church until he repents, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Paul says, hey, the rebuke is enough. To be told you have to be cut off from the church, that's enough to tell someone how serious you are, how serious you are about that sin. But look at what he says in verse 7. This is where he calls the church back to. The, the story of God's redemption and salvation and grace through Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says, So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Here's the deal. Apparently, the part of the story that we hadn't heard is that the man repented of his sin. That when confronted with his sin, that he confessed it as such and repented But for some reason, the church kept going, no, you're a sinner, no, you're a sinner, no, you're a sinner. And the truth is, is that that can happen in our own churches. It can happen in our own lives, especially against sins that we find especially egregious or ones that we find really distasteful. There are certain sins that we sort of just wink and nod and go, yeah, it's a sin, but, you know, everybody does it. Or, nah, it's not that offensive to me personally. And even though it might offend God, we kind of, eh, all right. But there's certain sins for us that we just look at and go, oh my gosh, I'm praying for the wrath of God upon that sin because it's just offensive to us. And that appears, again, to be what the church did to say that this sin, they just absolutely nailed the guy to the wall. And even after he repented, kept nailing him to the wall. This is where Paul says, rather, here's what you should do is you should comfort this guy. You should forgive him. He's repenting. And remember how you've been forgiven 
forgive this guy as well. And here's another reason to do that. Here's why it's so important to show forgiveness to other people. Because he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Separation from the body of Christ. What can it do to a person? Just think about what happens if you were to cut off one of your limbs. Not connected to the blood flow. Not connected to the nervous system. Not connected to the skeletal structure of the body. What happens if your hand gets cut off? It dies. If it's not reconnected and surgically reattached, it dies. The same is true for a believer who's been cut off from the church, either by their own choice or by the actions of the church, cutting them off, holding them at arm's length, not welcoming them into fellowship, not discipling them, teaching them all the things that Jesus commanded us, which is the Great Commission. Paul says, be careful. This guy could be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, by being cut off from the church. He could die out there on his own. We're supposed to welcome him back and comfort one another. The church has a history of doing this, and it's something that we have to be very aware of. And I think there's a model of it for us in the Old Testament. Mark down Daniel chapter 9 for a second. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Daniel does this thing that is truly a model of Christian benevolence and grace. Even before the time of Christ, Daniel is just this great example of one who presents himself in the right light. Look at verse 3, actually. Daniel chapter 9, verse 3. Daniel says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God. Take note real quick, just sorry, aside for a second, but take note that when people prayed in the Bible, they prayed, right? Like it wasn't just like rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. It wasn't just this little off-handed, Lord, help me as I get from here to there, and Lord, you know, help her to fall in love with me, and all those. Like, it's not just these, like when they prayed, they prayed. They spent time. They were on their knees. There were things like fasting taking place. That's a sacrifice. I could use a little more of that in my life. Please for mercy with fasting, with sackcloth and ashes. They put themselves in the position of just like humbling themselves before the Lord. John was known as old camel knees because of how much time he spent on his knees before the Lord. Prayer in this way is just powerful. Prayer in this way is powerful when we devote ourselves to it and sacrifice ourselves, our comfort, our time, the things that are valuable to us, to spend time before the Lord, imploring the Lord for his will to be done in our life. Speaking of the government, there's a story that, that whether this is true or not, I can't confirm, but it's been reported that George Washington, every morning before he started his day, spent an hour on his knees with a Bible open in front of him. Seeking the Lord, praying for direction, looking for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of leader that I would hope that we would be praying for in our country. Whether we see that again ever or not, it's up to the Lord. But what a great model. And so Daniel says this in verse 4. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love love him and keep his commandments. Look at what he says in verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Verse 6. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Daniel makes it very, very clear that while in the scriptures there is no record of sin in Daniel's life, he is shown to be a faithful servant of God, obedient to the things that God commanded him to do. He includes himself in this national prayer, prayer for his people, and says, Lord, we have sinned, knowing that 
in some way, whether I'm complicit to the, the sin of the individual that had to be excommunicated or cut off, man, I played a part in that in some way. I'm a part of the church, and if there was sin going on in the church that was being approved of and even promoted, man, if I approved of it, or if I at the very least didn't say something about it, I'm complicit in that guy's sin, the one that had to be rebuked. And so Daniel shows us the example of just going, I'm no better than anybody else here. Man, I have to, re- I have to repent constantly. I got to make confession constantly to the Lord. Go, Lord, I've fallen short. I've not done what you've called me to do. Forgive me. Forgive us. What a great model for us in the church. It's just like parents. Even though I believe children are responsible for their actions, probably at a younger age than most of us think, children know what they're doing oftentimes and in their disobedience and rebellion. I think we need to hold them accountable in a loving and and gracious way. But in that same way, parents are responsible for their kids. Even though they make choices, parents are responsible until the age, until the, the child is legal, right? 18 years here in the United States. But parents are responsible. This is sort of funny, but, but tragic, you know. I, I've heard parents hearing their child use a curse word, rebuke their child for using a curse word. Don't, hey, don't talk like that. Don't say those words. And then turn around and use the very same word in the presence of their child. And, and, and saying, you can't say it because you're 15 years old. I can say it because I'm 40, and somehow by being 40, it's okay to use those words, right? Hypocrisy. Double standard. If, 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 if you say that word and, and you're caught saying it, well, you could just go, I apologize. I'm sorry. You're right. I shouldn't speak that way. And in the same way, I wouldn't want you to speak that way. It doesn't honor the Lord. It doesn't honor the people that you're speaking to rather than holding this double standard. Personal righteousness is good. Self-righteousness is destructive. The difference between the two, between personal righteousness and self-righteousness, is the willingness to own our own sin. That's the difference. If I'm willing to repent or to confess and repent my sins, then that's the pursuit of personal righteousness and personal holiness. If I'm looking to condemn everybody else for their sin and not acknowledge that sin in my life, that's just self-righteousness. And that's destructive to relationships, and it's destructive to the church. We're to comfort those who've sinned, even while in the process of rebuke, desiring to restore them. And so Paul says, we're not ignorant of Satan's designs. Forgive one another, even as you've been forgiven. Take a look at verse 12 here. Or pardon me, actually, I want to take a look at something in in this, in verse 9. There's something that, that Paul says here that's important for us to take note of. Verse 9. Paul says, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. This is the litmus test to see if we really have the love of Christ in our hearts. If we're willing to call sin out in another brother or sister, right, to say, hey, listen, there's something going on in your life that's not healthy. I'm seeing a pattern here. I'm seeing something that's just not right, right? Help them deal with that. Allow them to to confess and repent of those things. And then immediately embrace them. Immediately bring them back into fellowship because they've been made right with God. Paul says, I'm testing you on this to see if you actually are obedient, if you actually love the Lord. It's like disciplining kids, right? Like this is the process of what it should look like. This is what we did. I don't know where we figured this out, but this happened when, when we were young parents. We started doing this with our kiddos when there was something wrong and they were, you know, there was some parenting that had to take place. We would say, hey, go sit on your bed. And it would be one of two things. We'd say, go sit on your bed. You're not in trouble. Like that was just like everybody just needs to go to their corners and like take a break. So go to your bed. Go sit on your bed. You're not in trouble. That was the first one. That was okay. The second one was, go sit on your bed. I'll be there in a minute. Like, that was the one that was just like, oh, shoot, you know, I really am going to get it now. But, but it was, the process was, and I don't know where I figured this out, but I started doing that. But I think it was because I remember someone telling us, don't ever discipline your kids when you're angry. Take a beat. Take a moment. Take a breath. Stop and just regain your composure from whatever you've been frustrated by that little tyke for. Stop. 
separate for a minute. Take a breath. Doesn't always work. Doesn't always work. And sometimes there's discipline that's needed immediately, right? To save someone from danger, those kinds of things. Those things happen, but in the appropriate setting, hey, go sit on your bed. I'll be in there in a minute. Lord, give me the wisdom to know how to deal with this situation, right? Then you go in, and what would happen is it would be a discussion. Go, hey, listen, here's what just took place. This is what's happening. And there needs to be some correction and some discipline. Sometimes that was just a, just a conversation. At other times, it required the rod. It required to, to beat the foolishness out of the child, right, like the Scripture says. Now, beat is a strong word that we use differently than they used in the biblical times. This is not to beat the tar out of your kids, right? Like, that's the threat. I'm going to beat the tar out of you, right? But that's, it's just it's the rod of correction. It's, it's remembering what needs to be remembered. I've told you this. You disobeyed. That's dangerous for you spiritually, physically, emotionally. You need to remember this correction. But immediately upon that correction, that discipline being applied to the child, tears and crying, you turn around and you embrace the kiddo. And you give him a big hug, not to confuse the message, but for, you to, for them to understand while there was a rod of correction, there were also hands of comfort immediately after. There was a rod of correction, then they turn around in tears and you just scoop them up and you love on them and you pray with them and you just encourage them. And now we're all done. No, discipline's done. Remember, but right now it's done. Let's go back to life the way that it should be. And so Paul says, this is a test that I'm giving you to see if you actually are going to be obedient in all things, if you actually love the Lord. Now, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord... My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of him and went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. This is a scripture I turn to for comfort when I feel like I have completely missed the mark in regards to my ministry, personally. We're all supposed to be evangelists. We're all supposed to be witnessing to who Jesus is. We all have had the experience where we felt compelled, where like our heart's burning in us, and we're like, whether it's the grocery store line or the gas station or a friend at school or whatever, we're like, I need to invite this person to church. I need to tell them about Jesus. Like, I need to talk to them. Like, and it's just this thing. And then we let the moment slip by and we just feel like the worst, lowest, because we feel like we've failed God somehow. In moments like that, I turn to this scripture. Because listen again to what Paul says. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, that was his purpose, to share the good news of Jesus. He says, even though a door was open for me in the Lord... There was the perfect opportunity to preach, to share the gospel. It was right there in front of Paul. Verse 13, he says, My spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, this is in no way a justification of being disobedient to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit grips your heart and moves you to, towards someone, to go, listen, you need to share with this person. This is the relationship that you're in so that you could share Jesus. Man, we need to be obedient to that. Delayed obedience is simply disobedience. And so we want to make sure that we're responding to the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. There's also discernment at work. That there are certain situations where you just in the training of who we are as followers of Jesus, say, I should be sharing the gospel whenever I have the chance. And then in a given moment, we kind of go, now's not the time. This just it, Something's not right about this situation. Sort of like the person who says they want to go into bars and witness to people in bars, right? Let's go to a bunch of people who've had a couple of drinks, maybe a little loosey-goosey, and let's start talking to them about Jesus. Hey, listen, that ain't the time to go in there and start discussing theology with people when they hardly know how to get home, right? Like, that's, that's not the time to be doing that. There's a discernment there. And Paul says, even though the Lord opened up this door, there was this situation here of the Lord, something wasn't right in my spirit. I discerned something wasn't quite right. My buddy Titus wasn't here. 
It just wasn't the right situation. It speaks of two things. It speaks of discernment and being able to hear the Holy Spirit. But it also speaks to the issue of why Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. There's a real value in understanding that. We are not lone rangers. We are not out on our own trying to convert the known world. We're a part of the body of Christ. And there's safety in numbers. There is a value to having brothers and sisters around us to encourage us, support us, hold us accountable. And even though there's this situation that Paul could have preached, Paul's an experienced guy. He knows the word. He's in in relationship with the Holy Spirit, been trained by Jesus. He just went, Titus isn't here. This isn't the right situation. I take my leave of you. There's value in us considering that, right? In understanding that the Lord has times and seasons for everything. Well, look at verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. It's as if Paul says, even when we aren't the ones who proclaim the gospel, even when we have to take our leave of situations where God may have opened a door, And we say, nah, this isn't the right situation. Paul says, even when I don't get to preach the gospel, thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession. He's making a reference to how a Roman general would enter back in to a city, to his home city, and be welcomed by the crowds. And he would lead the procession through the streets, proclaiming his victory. Here's what what Paul is saying, that in our life, simply as we walk around, Wherever we need to go during the day, it's as if Jesus is in front of us leading this great victory procession. So much so that we're close to Jesus and he in his victory, like the fragrance of that is coming off of Jesus and is pouring out upon us. You guys have heard that before or perhaps even used that language yourself. Been around someone where you just went, man, they just smell like Jesus. Or you walk into someone's house and go, man, it's just like the fragrance of the Holy Spirit here. It's an artsy-fartsy kind of way of just saying, man, you guys spend a lot of time with Jesus. You're just around him, and everything that you're doing just feels like the Holy Spirit. But Paul says, thanks be to God that even when I didn't get to preach, man, our lives have this fragrance about it. He says in verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved And among those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Paul says this aroma about us, this presence about us, that we've been with Jesus, man, it it leads to one of two things. That when I encounter another brother or sister and there's this knowledge that we're just in the body together, whether we've actually worshipped together or we're from far-flung locations in the, in the world, when we come together and we have Jesus in common, it's just like, it's like life-giving. It's like, yeah, we're with the body. We're moving and living and breathing in the spirit. And yet the truth is also in the opposite form, that when we come up against someone who's dying in the sense that they don't have new life in Christ. There's something that just sets us apart from them. There's something about us when we've spent time with Jesus that just sort of repels those who are dying. That's why oftentimes Christians are accused of being uh, uh, condemning, right? Or judgmental is the word I was looking for. You Christians are so judgmental. I've never judged anybody in my life I didn't tell you you were good or bad or indifferent. I'm just trying to tell you about Jesus. And it comes out to the person who is dying spiritually as judgment and death. But to the one who is a brother or sister in Christ comes out as life-giving. Now Paul finishes this statement. And and you find Paul do this in so many subtle but, but powerful ways. He's talking about this great procession that Jesus is leading and, and, and this fact that, that we are a part of this process, that we have this fragrance of Jesus, either to life or to death, depending on who we're around. And he says in the second half of verse 16, who is sufficient for those things? Who is sufficient for these things? How is it that even though Jesus is leading the triumphal procession, 
that he includes us in this ministry and even calls and commissions us for the work of his gospel. We're not worthy, and yet we make sure that we are operating out of the authority being led by Jesus. What a wonderful grace of God to include us in his ministry, and what a blessing it is. Paul finishes this section of the letter by sort of recapitulating. Remember, he started and he, he was answering sort of this attitude that was coming across from the Corinthians of, of like, Paul, you're just being wishy-washy. You don't seem to be able to make up your mind about things, and we're sort of getting tired of our association with you. And in verse 17, he says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity. And that word sincerity can also be translated as, as transparency. You could see, There's no guile here. We're not trying to pull a fast one over on you. We've presented ourselves in the way that we have. We've been faithful and we've told the truth to our purposes here. And, and that's, you can see it. You know who we are by our behavior. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Again and again and again, having to reassert his authority with the church to say the things that I'm saying are not just things I've come up with in my mind to try and attract you or to be mean to you or mean-spirited or anything. We're speaking the words of Christ out to you because we've been called by God, commissioned by God, taught by God to be an encouragement to you. And Paul has to make this distinction because it appears as though the church at Corinth has had interactions with or exposure to other quote-unquote ministers who were quite honestly peddling, meaning selling the thing that he, they wanted to teach to the church. And Paul is the example throughout the scriptures, and he would tell even this church later on, he goes, there are times when I don't take money from anybody. I, pr- I pay my own way. I don't want money from you. I'll take money from that church, but not from you because I want to prove my point that I'm not doing this to get rich. I'm doing it out of the compulsion of the love that I have for the body of Christ. And Paul offers a wonderful example to all ministers in that regard. Well, we break there at the end of chapter 2. And one of the things I know that in studying the Word of God is that you can never get everything. Thankfully, the Bible is living and, and, and powerful, the Scripture says, of itself, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's, it's something that lives and moves with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we read it this way tonight, and we, we draw these truths out of the text. And you may, in going back over your notes, go, oh, Lucian missed this point. And, oh, no, 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 look at this. And this one guy heard that part. You know, listen, the beauty of the Scripture is that every time we come to it, God is speaking to us. And he may speak something unique and different to us in the same passage of Scripture five different times in our life. That's a powerful, powerful testimony to the power of God's word and why we should be devoted to being in it again and again and again and not just saying, I read it once, I'm all good. No, it's a living document that we need to maintain our devotion to knowing it.